We are Harvard Ventures, and this is The Bottom Line, a podcast about entrepreneurship, innovation, and everything in between. I'm Virginia, and today we have special guest Strauss Zelnick in the studio. Strauss is CEO and chairman of Take-Two Interactive, the developer and publisher of some of the world's most played video games, such as NBA 2K and Grand Theft Auto. He is also the founder of Zelnick Media Capital, a leading private equity firm that invests in media and communications companies. Strauss previously served as the president of 20th Century Fox and CEO of Columbia Music Entertainment. Let's get right into the bottom line. You received a degree in English and psychology at Wesleyan and have a JD and MBA from Harvard. How have these different components of your education shaped your professional journey to date? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, I'm not sure an undergraduate education does much for anyone's career, um, unless you go to sort of a you know school that has like a business undergrad program or you know accounting undergrad, something where you're actually trained in a particular skill. You know, I wasn't trained in it. I had no skills when I graduated from college. Um, on the other hand. I had a great experience at Wesleyan, and I think it helped me think, learn how to think, and process ideas, and analyze things, and taught me how to write uh, and communicate. So there's so so many benefits, but um, I'm not sure it had a particular influence on my career, except that I was a relatively, I didn't think so, but I was a relatively undistinguished student in high school. I had a pretty lofty view of how I was doing, and I thought I was going to Harvard um, College. And my family had, uh, has has gone to Harvard forever since uh, since the late 1800s. But imagine my surprise when I wasn't admitted, and um, and I mean I had like was totally clueless. I had failed to do my homework and understand like what it took to get admitted, but because um, just seemed obvious to me that I was going. And um, so I went to the school I was admitted to, which was Wesleyan, and. Um, and it was great, you know. It was obviously I needed a wake-up call, clearly, um, so that I got that. And uh, I also was in an environment that was well suited to who I was at the time. And um, for the first time in my life, because I, I showed up uh, with a huge chip on my shoulder, because my view was I don't belong here; I belong at Harvard. Um, and with enormous insecurity, because fifty percent of the class went to prep schools, and I went to public high school in New Jersey, and I knew I didn't know anything. And uh, so I uh, worked really, 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 really hard. And it was the first time in my life I actually excelled. I mean, excelled in an objective sense as opposed to in my own, uh, my own world. And that set me up for my career and that I understood, like, to do well, you got to work hard. And when you work hard, you can do well. Um, in terms of the JD MBA program at Harvard, um, I mean, look, I loved Harvard Law School. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I knew that. But it did. I think it, it's, it's, it's a... Harvard Law School is, is, a, is a school of philosophy of law. It's not a law school. It doesn't teach you how to be a lawyer, which is good, because I had no interest in being a lawyer. But it does really um, teach you about uh, how to process ideas and arrive at sensible conclusions. And it also insists that you are able to look at a problem from any different angle. And business school, um, for me, um, is probably less relevant, even though I've spent my life in business. Um, but, you know, I, there was some great stuff that I learned there as well. Um, and probably the best thing the JD MBA program does for anyone is it gives you a calling card, um, uh, which helps you get jobs. 
Those are some great insights into your education, and we're definitely interested in learning about the differences between Harvard College, Harvard Business School, and Harvard Law School. What led you to gaming, and what do you see in the future of the industry? Well, I, I had you know set out to have a career in the motion picture business, and that was my life's ambition. You know, up to the point of you know that I was in the job market, which is when I graduated from grad school, because I went directly from college to grad school. I didn't take time off in between. And um, so I never worked until I graduated from, uh, from Harvard um, when I was 26 years old. So I was already pretty old for never having worked except for summer jobs. And uh, I went to um, Columbia Pictures Television and because uh, it was the closest job I got to being head of a movie studio and um, did well there. And, you know, I, I sort of didn't realize this at the time, but the nature of the business, particularly then, somewhat less so now, was that if you really, really did well, you could be promoted very quickly. And I, um, I was promoted after two years at Columbia, became the youngest vice president at Columbia Pictures. Then I left to join the largest independent film company uh, as uh, head of corporate development, which is like, you know, uh, it's a staff job, um, which I didn't want, but they'd indicated to me there was sort of more possible um, growth ahead. And nine months after I got there, I became president of the company. And this was a public company at the time. And um, a meaningful public company in the space, largest independent. And I did really well there. The first picture I greenlit became the highest grossing independent film of all time. That didn't hurt. And um, I was recruited from there to become president of 20th Century Fox. And, um, and I was still quite young. I was 32 when I went to Fox. And um, I did that for four years, released a huge number of hits. And at that point decided um, for any number of reasons. Um, that it was time to think more broadly about my career. I mean, I, I had this goal of being head of a movie studio and think it would happen when I was 29. I didn't think I'd have had four years of experience as president of a movie studio in Hollywood by the time I was 36. And so I began to look at my career and say, man, I think I want to revise my ambition to be, to be broader than that and to, to sort of run, to both to be more entrepreneurial and also to run a multi-divisional entertainment company. At the, at the CEO level. And so um, I started doing some homework and I came upon the uh, video game business. And I'd been working on it for Fox as an idea. I was still very early. And um, the entertainment business was allergic to it because there was a big disaster when Warner Communications owned um, Atari and almost took the company down many years earlier. But I thought it was a, a new opportunity in the video game business. And I basically made the decision, and this is going back many years, that the video game business would be the next huge entertainment business. And if I could get in kind of on the ground floor, that would make sense. And I, at that time, was then recruited, oddly, to go to a video game company called Crystal Dynamics, which didn't have revenue. It was pre-revenue business in Silicon Valley. And I voluntarily quit my job and went to Silicon Valley and became the CEO of Crystal Dynamics. Um, which which grew into a successful video game company. I then, um, sorry, I think that answers your question. So at that point, I'd sort of gotten religion on video games and realizing that it was the future of the entertainment business. So we're talking about 1993, so very long time ago. Um, I, I was recruited a way to turn around a big record company. One of the first things I did was start a video game business for that record company because I saw it as a growth area. That was called BMG Interactive. Um, we, uh, for an array of internal political reasons, I was forced to sell that business and I divested it and all of the properties that it owned to a tiny little public company called Take-Two Interactive, 
1999. And then eight years later, uh, I started my own business in 2000. And eight years later, actually 2001, uh, eight years later, I took over um, at Take-Two Interactive in a, in a public company takeover. I've been uh, the chairman and the CEO of the company ever since. Amazing. Well, you've had a lot of experience as an executive at multiple entertainment companies, and we definitely want to talk about Take-Two Interactive. What is the process like at Take-Two Interactive for pitching a new video game? Well, I mean, it's not like film and television. You know, we don't, we don't basically take, in the film business, you know, the creative team will take thousands of pitches a year, and um, they'll put hundreds of properties into development and write scripts and the like. And then at any given time, when I was at Fox, we had 1,100 or so titles in development for motion pictures. And of those 1,100, we would actually make about 10 a year, which say most never got made. Terribly inefficient system, um, but nothing like the system in the video game business. Because in, in the movie business, anyone can come up with an idea, anyone can write a script. Um, in the video game business, we're not, we don't really look at ideas as standalone entities. We're, we and all of our competitors work with teams of experienced developers. And we look at the team and then the idea and the plan to make a game all as one thing before we greenlight it. And most of our, um, not all, but most of our development goes to internal teams that already exist that are working on their next project. And then we do bring in outside teams. And that, that pitch would look relatively standard. You know, people would show up and say, here's what we're working on. You know, here's who we are. Here's what we've done before. And this is what the game is going to look like. Um, with, you know, perhaps, um, you know, uh, art, for example, would not be atypical. Maybe even some kind of rough prototype that they would show us. Um, but more often than not, the bulk of our development is internal, and it would be as simple as a team saying, we're going to make a sequel to this intellectual property that you own. Here's the budget. Here's how long it's going to take. We're going to get started. Um, so very different. You would never do that in the movie business. Wow. Well, very good to hear the differences between the two industries. And so I'm going to hand off the next set of questions to Dakota here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Virginia. Yeah, wow, obviously a very impressive early insight into what the gaming industry would become. That being said, NBA 2K is one of the most successful franchises not only for your company, but for the entire video game industry. How do you approach expanding the brand globally annually? It is also your first foray into esports. Can you share about how you entered into that partnership with the NBA, the success of the league thus far, and where you think it can go? Um, well, I mean, look, our, our creative teams want NBA 2K to be the best sports game on earth. And in, in fact, it's the highest rated sports game in North America and has been for a long time, according to Metacritic. It's the highest selling sports game in North America, according to uh, NPD, and has been for a while. Um, and they achieve that, the team at Visual Concepts, which is the division of 2K that creates the game. They achieve that by innovating every year and making sure that not only is it the best sim out there, but it also, every year, new elements are added to make the experience of the game more engaging, more round, um, more all-inclusive, whether that's you know the introduction of the neighborhood or the introduction of um, 
linear stories, the introduction of music that's really part of the game. And of course, all the add-on content that goes um, with it uh, post-release. Dakota, do you actually play it? I have played it a little bit, yeah. I for sure. Yeah, that sounds like that sounds like a no. <laughs> well, I don't own it, but I've played it a lot. And, uh, all right. Like so that also sounds like a no. Okay, I get it's it. No, I probably. <laughs> um, my favorite sports game. Okay, good. There, good. You've at least as a group redeemed yourself. So the goal is to innovate every year, and that's what our team aims to do. Really, nothing more or less fancy than that. With regard to worldwide growth, um, there's a great opportunity because it's primarily a domestic sport. And one of the ways we grow the, the worldwide um, business is by having, um, by localizing, I think we localize in 16 or 17 languages, something like that. And uh, often having local talent, local commentators and the like in the, in the local version of the games. And we work hand in glove with the NBA to market internationally as well. Um, with regard to the NBA 2K League, uh, that deal um, came about because we and um, the NBA, with, you know, with which we work very, very closely, sort of thought, you know, we should do this. Let's give it a try. And um, we created a joint venture. Um, and we are co-owners of the league. We've been financing it together. And uh, we're into our third season, and it continues to grow. I'm pretty excited about this season because obviously it's something that we can do in these times. Um, we've done some tournaments lately on ESPN that were not the NBA 2K League, but were NBA 2K tournaments, and they've done really, really well. So um, we're really excited about the league, um, and I think we have 23 or 24 teams now, um, including one international team. Um, it's really exciting, but it's early days still. Yeah, the success of 2K has definitely been insane. That being said, 2K is one game from one subsidiary of Take-Two Interactive. There's just so much more. So as a CEO, what is it like interacting with the subsidiaries of Take-Two Interactive? And how involved are you with the operations of these companies? Well, we have a, we have a pretty independent um, setup. We, you know, we value our creative team's work greatly. And we, want to, we not only want them to pursue their passions, we insist that they pursue their passions, which distinguishes us from most of our competitors. We give them plenty of resources. Uh, we probably spend more time and money making games than anyone else. And um, our game is nothing short of perfection. We don't always get there, but we more often than not, we do. In terms of my interactions, you know, um, I have a relationship with all of our studio heads and um, we talk as needed. Uh, Carl Slatoff, who's the president of Take-Two and my partner at ZMC, is more actively involved in the day-to-day -day management of our business. So he runs our quarterly product review process, for example, I do not. Um, and, you know, I'm not a gamer and I not, do not see myself as consumer in chief and I'm not a coder. So I don't set myself up as the creative arbiter of what we're doing. And I certainly wouldn't presume to tell our creative folks what to do. But hopefully we do engage regularly about what is going on and share ideas, and um, and I'm hopeful that I, I can be of service to my team in that way. Um, my goal is to recruit, um, encourage, motivate, and lead and retain the best creative talent in the business. That's how I've defined my job since the very beginning of my career. And the thing I'm most proud of in my career is that 
the track record of the teams I've led at every entertainment company of any sort, I've, I've been in all the entertainment businesses, those track records are the best in the business. And they're not the best in the business because because of me, because uh, I don't do the creative work. I just explained that. They're the best in the business because the people that I work with are phenomenally talented and most talented people. And my competitors would agree with that too. So it's, that's not hyperbole. Um, and that we create an environment that allows them and insists uh, that they create their best work. And then we do a really good job distributing it and marketing it. And uh, we create hits. And um, that's my job, my job. The job of an entertainment executive is to make sure the company creates hits. Very interesting. So what I understand is, is that it's management skills that you bring to the table. And clearly that's something you're very good at. But taking a step back for a moment, you've mentioned before that you have the nerve to introduce yourself to anyone you find intriguing. What have been the greatest pieces of advice that you've learned from just reaching out to people? So I, I did that when I was um, when I was in college and grad school. Uh, I would I'd be I, I'm probably not in as formal a setup as we are right now. I didn't join a club that sort of brought people and speak to them, but um, I did go to talks at you know the various schools that I went to, and I would try to meet the people who come speak. And I, I, you know, when I was in business school, particularly a lot of CEOs would come speak and I'd really try to, you know, attend to listen. And then if possible, catch them after and ask them some questions. And the question I was asked was, you know, what's the most important advice you would give someone in my position who's just starting out in business. And I found that the advice circled into three specific areas, no matter who I asked. Um, and that advice was first, listen, most people talk more than they listen. Um, if you really listen to people, you'll bring out the best in them. You never know what you might learn. Um, if you think about it, you know, especially guys like you, women like you, you're, you're taught from an early age because you're all smart or you wouldn't be at Harvard, you know. You're really smart. You're so precocious. You're so charming and funny. You know, talk, right? You go to certain classes, you get a class participation grade, you know, you get um, people respond to you if you know how to present. So we're all conditioned that when we get out of these elite schools, like that our communication skills are, you know, one of our great assets. Um, but actually, it's a much greater asset to listen and to bring, draw other people out and to bring out the best in them. And if you want to be in a position of leadership, you have to be able to do that. And um, it's hard to know from this conversation since I'm doing most of the talking. But I'd say... If I don't know, Alan's on the line. He can he he can accuse me of being a liar if, if that's the case. But you know, I think most people in my company would say when they come talk to me about stuff, I'm a great listener, and um, I want to hear what they have to say because I do. Uh, the second piece of advice is um, the actual advice was get in before your boss and leave after your boss. That sounds a little manipulative um, and kind of a little silly, but the I I would just translate that advice into work really hard. There's no substitute for hard work. When you guys graduate, particularly, you are totally undifferentiated because most of you will go to work at places where the people who also work there look like you because otherwise you wouldn't be there. So you're sitting next to, to a young Harvard grad who's got the same resume um, or Columbia grad or Penn grad or whatever. So how are you gonna distinguish yourself? Oh, and you have no reputation. Oh, and you have no experience. You don't know anything. You actually don't know anything. 
So the only way to distinguish yourself is by working harder than the next person. Now, this is not a um, long-term uh, 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 solution to ongoing success because as time passes and you gain experience and learn stuff and know stuff, you know, just throwing hours at something is not actually doesn't matter. But in the beginning of your career, really, really, really matters. And, you know, I, I broaden that to say, you know, the advice I give people in this situation is just be the person who says yes. You know, keep a smile on your face. When there's someone asks what needs to be done, you're like, I'm doing that. Someone need coffee? I'm going to get them coffee. Um, by the way, I give people coffee now. I'm, I, I'm chairman of an enterprise that employs over 9,000 people between ZMC and all of its companies. And um, I'm happy to get people coffee. No problem. How can I help? So, um, you know, work hard, work harder than the next person. Keep a smile on your face. Don't complain. You know, don't expect people to tell you how great you are. Um, uh, don't gossip. Just work hard. And uh, the third, you know, life is a meritocracy, whether you like it or not, at least in this country, it is. And then the third thing is never compromise your integrity. It's all that you have. And um, that's a tough one because, you know, all of us are tempted and we all make mistakes. And I have made mistakes in this area. Oh, by the way, I've made mistakes in the other two areas too. There have been times I didn't work hard enough and times I didn't listen well enough. Compromise your integrity. You know, I haven't done that much, but there was one experience, one situation I was in where I, um, I was working on a deal and I didn't handle myself properly. And, um, got us into a lot of trouble. I had to learn a really brutal lesson from that. So never compromise your integrity. It's not worth it. Um, and that may make you, you, you're gonna have to make a hard decision on that one. And um, it will happen. If you have a good career, if you have a bad career, it doesn't matter. Like, you, you know, but if you're gonna have a good career and it's gonna lead you to good things, you will be presented with numerous opportunities to cut corners to, to get ahead. Now, we can argue about whether you'll actually get ahead over the long term by cutting them, doesn't matter. In the moment, you're going to be presented with that opportunity. And the question is, what do you do with it? And you're going to be presented with numerous opportunities to do things that are just slightly off of what you know to be right. And are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? And when you see people who went to elite institutions like you did who are behind bars, they started where you were. You know, generally speaking, they were not like career criminals. That by definition, they started where you, where you were. But along the way, when presented with those tough decisions, usually where there's lots of um, reward in the moment for cutting that corner, some people do. And my experience is sometimes that, sometimes that works out, but sometimes it leads you down a path. And what is, you know, putting, dipping your toe into the water of um, dishonesty is just the beginning, you know, before you take a swim and it becomes your daily swim. And, um, you know, there's a company called Enron. It's long enough ago that I'm not sure you all remember Enron, but it was a massive fraud, massive, massive fraud. The guy, the CEO was a guy named Jeff Skilling who went to Harvard Business School. By all accounts, a really good guy, really smart guy, really educated guy. Do I think he started off as a criminal? Nope. I think he stuck his toe in the water when he was presented with a small opportunity and challenge. And then he, he began to lead ultimately a criminal enterprise. And I think he's still in jail. Wow. There's definitely a lot that we can learn from the different situations that you would have seen in your career so far that we probably haven't even thought about yet. Thank you so much for all that you have to say. But now I'm going to go ahead and pass the questions off to Jonathan. Thanks, Dakota. Piggybacking a bit off what we were just talking about, 
You've said before that the factor most correlated with career success is knowing what you want. What advice do you have to listeners who are still trying to figure out what they want? Well, the, the advice I have is do two exercises. Um, the first is make a list of your values, which sort of should be descriptive of who you are. And I suppose what you want, but mostly who you are. And it shouldn't be aspirational. It should be actual. Um, so it shouldn't be, you know, I like to help, you know, underprivileged children. And then, but what you, know, you actually do, you know, with your spare time is, you know, uh, you know, watch Netflix and hang out. Um, it should be, I like to watch Netflix and hang out if that's the case. Um, so the values list is a long list. It's descriptive of who you are and what you care about. And then make a list of your goals, which, you know, we're talking about career now. So your career goals to the extent that you know them, and they should be very specific. Like I want to be CEO of a big company. I want to make a certain amount of money. I want to, uh, I want to build a nonprofit that helps underprivileged children. I, you know, whatever I want to be a curator of museum. I want to be a professor. I want to teach high school math. Your, your goals to the extent you know them. If you don't know them, put down whatever goals you, you, do, you are comfortable with knowing. Um, if you do that exercise, you do it carefully, thoroughly, and honestly, it begins to at least help you build a map for what life should look like because you want your goals to be consistent with your values. So for example, let's say my values are, I like having plenty of time to watch Netflix and hang out. Um, I never want to be at work past five o'clock in the evening. And um, as an example, and my goal is to be CEO of Goldman Sachs. Well, those two things just don't go together. They're just not happening. So by making the list, you can at least drive out inconsistencies. Um, and if your values list is broad enough, it may help you determine what your goals are. The second exercise, if the first one doesn't help enough, is to do to create a Venn diagram with sort of three circles. Circle A is what am I really passionate about um, in life, in work, whatever. Uh, circle B is what am I uniquely good at? That should be a really short list, if you're honest. And Circle C should be what business opportunity or professional opportunity encompasses those two things. So, for example, uh, what am I really passionate about? Tennis. What am I really good at? I'm a really great tennis player, but I'm not great enough to be on the pro tour. Um, what's the opportunity set that encompasses the two? Be a pro at a, at a tennis club, for example. Um, now, you'd have to go back to your values list, and if your goal is to get – your values are I need to have lots of money or your goal is I want to have a certain amount of money and it's a load of money, well, you're probably not going to – that's not consistent with being – you know, a tennis pro. So you have to look at these lists together. You can double back and look at the first two. Um, in my case, you know, my Venn diagram was, what am I passionate about? All things creative, motion pictures, television, um, recorded music, as it turns out, video games, plays, books, you name it. And I was really passionate about creating. I was, when I was in college, I was a writer and I was a singer songwriter and I dabbled, I thought about doing acting. Um, and then I looked at the list of what I was really, really good at, and performing was not on that list. So performing, uh, writing, I'm pretty good at. I've written two books. But uh, performing, I definitely was not good. And this requires a lot of honesty, by the way, because it's hard to have these conversations with yourself. 
I had really defined myself as a singer songwriter and as a writer. And I realized when I, I didn't do this exact exercise, but when I went through it, I was not uniquely good at either one. I was a good writer. I was, I was not even a good singer songwriter. Um, I was sort of mediocre. So I had to look at it and go back and say, okay, here are my passions. Okay. Now what are, what am I uniquely good at? Very few things, but, and I'm just being bluntly honest here, uh, because these exercises are not useful if you're not, what am I uniquely good at? Well, I think I'm a pretty good communicator, if not a very good communicator. Uh, I have the ability to take in lots of information, analyze it, and pretty quickly get to the right result. And um, I seem to be able to motivate other people. Um, so now you take my passions, everything related to the entertainment business, my talents, and what was the intersection of the two? Leading entertainment businesses and working with creative people. That's what I've done for my whole career. For sure. That's some great advice on combining what you're passionate about with your goals in life. You've mentioned how video gaming is currently the most profitable sector in the entertainment industry. What percentage of your ZMC portfolio is in gaming? Uh, we don't really give out those percentages, but Take-Two is for sure the biggest company that ZMC is engaged with. How do you source new portfolio companies at ZMC, and what do you consider a successful exit? Uh, we source them through any number of uh, areas first through um, relationships of the principals at the firm. Um, but primarily, we have a business development group, and the business development group is in touch with all the intermediaries who represent companies for sale. And um, it's their job to be in touch all the time, see what's available, and, um, and dig into the things that are of interest. Our process at ZMC is different than many um, competing firms in that we proactively pursue 10 to 12 investment themes at any given time and look for companies that fit with the themes, not the other way around. We don't sort of look for companies that are available for sale and see if the theme resonates. We start with the theme, we're theme-driven investors. And in terms of what a good exit is, a good exit is one that is good for all the stakeholders, not just for us. You know, we, we view the stakeholders in our businesses as first and foremost the customers who buy the products and services the companies create. We're here to serve them. If we're not serving our customers, we have no reason to be in business. Secondarily, our constituents would be our colleagues at the companies who provide those goods and services and make, that, make the business work. If we're not serving them, they can't serve customers. Third would be our investors, the, the people and companies who put up the capital that we use to buy companies. They deserve a return on their investment. And finally, uh, we deserve uh, some compensation for our work in making all this happen and running these businesses. Um, a successful exit is one that takes care of everyone in the value chain. Communication with your clients and within the company is obviously a key component of your success. The final question I wanted to ask you is, between working out 8 to 11 times a week, being CEO of Take-Two Interactive, and the founder of ZMC, how do you balance your time? Well, it's funny you should ask when I'm you know, stuck in uh, quarantine uh, with my family. I have a gym here, so not a problem now. Um, I'd say I balance it imperfectly. You know, I, 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 I think um, one of the things that I, I say to people early in their careers is, you know, that the, the fantasy that you can have it all is, is just that. It's fantasy. You can't have it all. You got to make trade-offs. And I don't think that I've perfectly balanced my career. And I don't think my wife or kids would say that I have. Um, but it helps that I'm a quick study and I'm a quick reader and that I'm a very, I'm very efficient. Um, and um, some people are offended by my efficiency and I'll have short meetings. Um, it helps that I'm a curious person and I like doing lots of different things at once. Um, but I would say it's primarily that 
Um, I know what I want. I know what I want look, life to look like. Part of what I want in my life is fitness. Part of what I want that's important to me is relationship with my wife and kids. Part of what I want is relationship with friends. Um, and then, of course, a big part is what I want from my work, in, both in terms of being of service to my colleagues and companies, but also what I want for myself in terms of my own achievements. That's important to me. It would be dishonest to say otherwise. Um, and I, there are other things I want some time for. I like taking vacation. I, you know, I, I like traveling. Um, so, and I like, you know, cultural activities. Um, so I try to find time recognizing certain, certain times I fall short. Okay. I'll pass off the last question to Georgia. Thank you so much. I think that was a great way to come full circle, returning to the theme of identifying what you want and putting in the hard work to achieve those goals. So we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, as Virginia noted at the start of this interview, um, we named our podcast The Bottom Line because our goal is to get down to the hottest and most controversial takes in startup land. Um, so we'd love to close out by asking you, what's your hottest take? My take is that people succeed and companies succeed when they're focused on being of service to others, not of service to themselves. And that the way to live a good life and a productive life and a successful life is first and foremost, orient yourself to being of service to others. And that's the bottom line. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to find us online at harvardventures.org. If you're a company or individual interested in working with us, email us at hello at harvardventures.org and follow us on Instagram at harvard underscore ventures. Tune in next week for another episode of The Bottom Line.